is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Augustine Rayo, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he is here to talk with me about the construction of logical space. Augustine Rayo, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, okay, logical space, that's a term that's guaranteed to sound a little puzzling to a lot of people, I think, because usually we think of space as... Like something like physical space. Here is a table, and here's another table to the right of it, and there they are in sort of physical, geometrical space. But, uh, but what's logical space? That seems a little weird. It's the space of possibility. So a point in logical space is a way for the world to be. And uh, the whole of logical space is the collection of every possible way the world could be. And it's a very useful way for thinking about inquiry, for trying to understand how it is that we learn things about the world. Because you could think that to learn things about the world, we need to do two things. First, we identify logical space. First, we decide which are the different ways the world could be. And secondly, we try to decide of those ways the world could be, which is the way the world is or at least uh, identify some ways the world is not reducing the candidates for truth. So, for example, if I say, Professor Rayo is in the library, then what I'm doing is I'm drawing a line between all the different places that Professor Rayo could be and all the places where he isn't. So, namely, I'm saying that the actual world, the world we live in, is sort of within that boundary. So he might be near the entrance, he might be on the fourth floor, he might be wherever, but wherever he is, he's in the library. He's not down the street drinking coffee or anywhere else. Exactly. Now, those are the easy cases because everyone agrees that it's at least logically possible that I be at a cafe or in the library or whatnot. But there are certain cases where it's just not clear, it's not obvious whether we really have a possibility. So let me give you an example. There are some logicians who think that there is a gap between a statement of the form not not P and the statement P itself. So maybe it's the case that it's not the case that it's not the case that snow is white, but we're not immediately entitled to conclude that snow is white. So here's a question. Do we want to admit a possibility where we have the double negation, but not the claim itself? That's a big philosophical discussion. And in order to decide what conception of logical space to work with, we need to figure out whether to treat such difficult cases as genuine possibilities or not. And part of what the book is about is to try to find criteria 
to help us decide those difficult cases. Okay, right. So the idea is that there are different possible situations that we might be in. There are different ways the world might be. And we want to ask the question, given two specifications of a possible situation, are those the same possible situation or are they a different possible situation? So, you know, is the situation where Matt is not not happy the same situation as the situation where Matt is happy? Exactly. And when we were talking about possible questions for this interview, you came up with an example which I think is really interesting and a really good way of illustrating this kind of thing. So consider the sentence, there is a table in the room, and the sentence, there are some things arranged table-wise in the room. Do we want to say that those two statements say the same thing, or do we want to say that they say different things? If we think they say different things, then we might have a possibility where we have one but not the other. So one might think that you have a possibility where there are some things arranged table-wise, but there's no table. If you think they express the same thing, then there could be no such possibility. That would be incoherent. So again, the project of the book is in part to decide how one could determine whether to identify those two claims or not. So, you know, is there a difference between a bunch of wood blocks being arranged into into the shape of a table and there being a table? Maybe our intuitions are sort of pulling us in different directions here. So on the one hand, we might want to say, there's no way for there to be a table here without a bunch of, you know, table pieces being arranged in the shape of a table. Those are just, yeah, if you have one, you have the other. But maybe on the other hand, you know, pulling us in the other direction is the sense that, well, what if we had something that kind of table pieces like a leg and the top of the table uh, screwed together into the shape of a table, but it like, it wasn't a real table. Maybe it's like part of an art installation in a gallery that kind of looks like a table and it's got all the table bits, but somehow it's not a table because it's part of like performance art or something. That's right. And I think this is interesting because it's the kind of thing that non-philosophers would think is just not an interesting question. So, for example, if you ask a non-philosopher, is there a difference between Socrates' dying and Socrates' death taking place? They would say, well, what do you mean? I mean, you're just saying the same thing twice. But philosophers sometimes think of it differently. Philosophers sometimes think that, I mean, to put it colorfully, when God made the world and she made it the case that Socrates died, that was not enough to make it the case that Socrates' death took place because they think of Socrates' death as an object, a special kind of object which is different from Socrates. So in order to make it the case that Socrates' death takes place, God has to open a special drawer filled with events and pick the right one, pick the death, and add that to the world. Now, from a non-philosophical point of view, this seems totally and utterly ridiculous. But philosophers are drawing on a bunch of theoretical considerations that might force this conclusion anyway. And sometimes it makes a really big difference which way to go. So here's an example of an identity statement of the kind we've been talking about, which really, really matters to philosophers. So consider these two statements. On the other hand, there are no dinosaurs, plain and simple. And on the other hand, a statement that might seem to say something very similar, but talks about numbers. The statement, the number of the dinosaurs 
is zero. So we have, on the one hand, there are no dinosaurs, no talk of numbers. On the other hand, the number of the dinosaurs is zero. Talk of numbers. If you think that those two statements say the same thing, then there should be no mystery as to how we can know things about numbers. Because provided that you know that there are no dinosaurs, and that's something science can teach us, then you're already at the conclusion that the number of the dinosaurs is zero. Because that's just saying the same thing. There's no difference between there be no dinosaurs and the number of the dinosaurs being zero. But if you think that those two claims say something different, if you think, for example, that when God made the world, if she made it the case that there were no dinosaurs, that wasn't enough to also make it the case that the number of the dinosaurs is zero. For that, she would have to open her special numbers drawer and add an extra object, the number zero, to the world. If you think all that, then you think there's a real puzzle in determining how one could ever know anything about numbers. Because here I am, I'm convinced that there are no dinosaurs. And someone asks, okay, but is it also the case that their number is zero? And then I have to say, I don't know. Because what if God rested on the last day? What if she rested instead of adding the number zero to the world? In this puzzle of how we could possibly know whether there are numbers and what properties they have is something that has perplexed philosophers for generations. It's one of the great problems in the history of philosophy. So whether or not you accept the identity between these two statements is key to addressing a big, big philosophical problem. Off the top of my head, that seems pretty plausible to imagine that saying uh, the number of dinosaurs is zero is just the same thing as saying that there are no dinosaurs. The dinosaurs are gone. You know, I can't think of a situation in which, like, there would be no dinosaurs, but somehow the number of dinosaurs would not be zero. That seems impossible. So why would you think that those two situations can come apart, that you can have one without the other? You would only think that after years of training as a philosopher. (laughs) And I think the crucial bit of your training is the idea that if you have a name, if you have a singular term like zero, that has to refer to an object. And objects on this view are the the kind of thing that can exist independently of any other object. So whether or not this special object, the number zero, exists is an issue which is totally independent of how many dinosaurs you have. God might have decided to add or not add that object after she had uh, made all her decisions concerning dinosaurs. If you thought that, then of course you would think that there's a difference between there be no dinosaurs and their numbers being zero, because only the latter claim talks about this special, independently existing object, the number zero. Now, on this point, I think it's the non-philosophers who are right. I think believing that there's a difference is the result of embracing a philosophical theory which is motivated by philosophical considerations, but in fact, it's wrong because the philosophical considerations shouldn't carry as much weight as philosophers take them to carry. 
So it's based on the idea that whenever you have something like, I don't know, you know, a noun phrase in a sentence, well, the meaning of the noun phrase is what the noun phrase stands for. So if I say the teacher was angry at her student, then the meaning of the noun phrase the teacher is that person or something like that. That's what the name refers to. And then likewise, if I say, I don't know, you know, zero is my favorite number, then what the noun zero refers to in that sentence has to be some object, you know, the number zero. And uh, so it's as a consequence of this general theory about how meaning and language works that you might come to think that facts about numbers might come apart from facts about instantiations of things in the world. That's right. But it's the result of combining that theory with a particular metaphysical picture of objects. In fact, the linguistic theory you described is one that I think is by and large right. So I do think that generally speaking, when you have a name, when you have a singular term, it refers to an object. I think that Socrates, the name, refers to Socrates, the person, and that zero, the name, refers to the number zero. The crucial move is whether you think that those objects that are being referred to have existence which is independent, which floats free of the existence of other objects. So what someone like me thinks is that it really is true that the number zero exists and that it numbers the dinosaurs. The crucial thing is that the fact that the number of the dinosaurs is zero is exactly the same fact that there are no dinosaurs. So when God made it the case that there are no dinosaurs, she thereby made it the case that the number of the dinosaurs is zero. And from that it follows that zero exists. So the existence of zero is not something that floats free from other facts. It's something that's given to us for free. So whereas a lot of philosophers have traditionally thought, well, I have a choice here. I can either say there is a number zero and that number zero, well, it's a mysterious kind of object. Maybe it's timeless and not located in space and time, or I don't really know what numbers are, but it, you know, there, there is a number zero. That's one answer you can give, or one philosophy of mathematics you can have. And then another philosophy of mathematics you can have is that there are no numbers. There's no such thing as a number. All there are are things in the world, and they can either be instantiated or not. But it seems like you want to say, look, we don't have to make a choice there. We can just say both. We can say both, yes, there is a number zero. What it is for the number of dinosaurs to be zero is nothing more than for there to be no dinosaurs. Exactly, exactly. In fact, one might think of it as a rejection of the zoology theory of numbers. So suppose you're a zoologist and you study butterflies. Then it's natural to assume that whether or not a particular butterfly exists is totally independent of what volcanoes exist and what chairs exist and what tables exist. The only way to figure out whether the butterfly exists is to go out there and find it. In my view, numbers are not like that. Someone like Gödel believed that the way to uh, discover things about numbers was to have a special intuition, a perceptual-like faculty that allowed us to keep track of a mysterious realm of numbers. In my view, that's not necessary. In my view, you can learn things about numbers by learning things like that there are no dinosaurs. Okay, so I can see how this would work in the case of dinosaurs. I can see how 
you know, for the number of dinosaurs to be zero is exactly the same thing as for no dinosaurs to exist right now. What about like the number four? Can we explain what the number four is in a similar way? Uh, I'm delighted that you asked this question. I'm going to produce an argument which seems so bamboozling, so puzzling, that it's like magic. Suppose that one believed a particular identity statement. Suppose that one believed, in general, that for the number of Fs to be zero, for any Fs you want, just is for there to be no Fs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that for granted, and I'm going to prove on that assumption that numbers have to exist on pain of contradiction. In other words, I'm going to prove that the assumption that there are no numbers is worse than false. It's incoherent. Here's the argument. Suppose for reductio that there are no numbers. By our assumption, for the number of numbers to be zero, just is for there to be no numbers. So we know that the number of numbers is zero. But wait, zero is a number. So it follows from the fact that the number of numbers is zero, that there are numbers. Contradiction. So given our assumption, one can derive an inconsistency from the assumption that there are no numbers. The lesson of all this is that the existence of numbers is trivial. We get them for free. When God made the world, she did not have to do anything in order to make it the case that numbers existed. On pain of contradiction, she could not have done anything else. A world with no numbers is an incoherent world, and even God cannot create an incoherent world. And presumably part of the point of talking about God here, this is sort of a um, you know, philosophical turn of phrase uh, meant to illustrate what's even conceivable or possible in the strongest sense of the term. Whatever it is that God could do, so to speak, is what could conceivably be done. That's exactly right. It's a way of trying to get a handle on what facts are distinct from each other and which ones are identical. So when I say that when God did this, she thereby did that, really what I'm saying is that this and that are the same fact. That's why God has to either make it the case that both obtain, or make it the case that neither obtain. Okay, right. So we have a nice argument for the fact that there are numbers besides zero. But you might still wonder, like, what some of these numbers besides zero are. We've kind of said what the number zero is, in a way. We've sort of said, well, the number of such and such is zero, if there are no such and suches. But it seems like it's trickier to do that with other numbers, you know, like three or four. The number of giraffes is three if... There are three giraffes. Wait a minute, that's kind of circular, isn't it? Yes. Now, there is a trick that allows us to escape the circularity. And that's because in constructions like there are three giraffes, where three appears as a determiner grammatically, as opposed to a singular term, it turns out that one can use purely logical vocabulary, just quantifiers and logical connectives including the identity predicate, to cash out that term without ever having to introduce names of numbers. 
So let me give you an example with two, which is a little bit shorter than three. If you want to say, for example, there are two moons of Venus, the way you say it using purely logical vocabulary is to say there is something X, which is a moon of Venus, and something Y, which is a moon of Venus, and X is distinct from Y. And if you take anything which is a moon of Venus, then it's either identical to X or identical to Y. And as it turns out, that generalizes. So for any N, you can cash out the claim that there are NFs using a version of that technique, provided, of course, that N is finite. Now, here is something that's very interesting about this way of thinking of things. One might be tempted to think, okay, I understand. What's being proposed is a view according to which any mathematical claim can be translated into a non-mathematical claim. And that's certainly true for some cases. So typically when you have an example of a baby arithmetical truth, you can find a translation that does not use any mathematical vocabulary. But there's a horrible, horrible theorem. What the theorem shows is that provided some very minimal constraints are met, there is no way of defining a function that takes you from an arbitrary arithmetical statement to a statement with the same truth value that does not contain mathematical vocabulary. So the view cannot be a translation view. It cannot be the view that you can generally translate arithmetical claims as non-arithmetical claims. And in fact, in retrospect, that should have never been the view because whether or not translations are possible depends on how rich and how powerful are non-mathematical languages. And we shouldn't be basing deep claims in the philosophy of mathematics on parochial matters like how expressive a non-mathematical language we have. So the view is not about language. The view is about identity. It's about the identity statements we were talking about. It's about whether or not one can say that a claim like there are no dinosaurs is no different from the claim that their number is zero. Whether one is saying the same thing about the world, just using different words. So in a lot of cases, we have kind of two paraphrases of the same sentence, right? So we started with zero, and then you gave a nice example of how we would do that with the number two, and so on ad infinitum. For any finite number, you can come up with a pretty long-winded logical paraphrase of uh, what that means in terms of what things exist that doesn't ever mention the number itself. But it sounds like what you're saying is that, look, we don't have to claim that we have a way of coming up with a logical paraphrase for any statement about a number. All we have to say is that when we already know about two ways of saying the same thing about a number, what those two ways of talking are doing is they're describing the very same fact. That's correct. And we had better be in a position to put the view that way because the alternative the view according to which we have translations is necessarily false. It's interesting that when you engage in these uh, sort of imaginative thought experiments about how, if I wanted to say the same thing as there are five balls in the room without ever mentioning the number five, how would I do it? Uh, one problem that comes up is, you know, what to do with stuff like fractions or 
irrational numbers, numbers like pi or e. You, know, you might think that as they teach you in school, multiplication is just repeated addition. You might think that, uh, well, what is 3 times 2? Well, that's just 2 plus 2 plus 2. But then that view actually runs into some problems when you think about multiplying fractions because there's no such thing as adding 2 two-thirds of a time. There might be such a thing as adding 2 three times, but you know, that metaphor starts to break apart when you consider these other kinds of number. So is there a way to think about you know, statements like uh, the number of people who like Titanic in the world is over a half? It all depends on one's logical resources. So if you're working with a very powerful logic, then you can say a lot. If you're working with a very meager logic, then there's very little you can say. So that question really turns on a different question, which is how strong a logic are we prepared to work with? And that's a really interesting question. But it's important that this not be confused with a different metaphysical debate about whether the fact that there are no dinosaurs is distinct or not from the fact that the number of the dinosaurs is zero. It's one thing to have a linguistic debate about the legitimacy of a particularly strong logic. And it's a different thing to be engaged in a metaphysical discussion about the shape of logical space. So maybe to go back to our earlier example of the table, there's a table in front of me. Is that the same thing as there's this piece of metal here and there's that piece of metal over there and there's this piece of wood on the top and they're arranged into the shape of a table. You know, I nailed the one to the other. You know, are those the same thing? I think intuitively it seems like whenever you have the one situation, you have the other situation. My own view is that those facts are identical. Why do I think this? Well, I think that generally speaking, when one is trying to decide whether to identify two facts or not, one has to balance competing considerations. Accepting the identity, you win something and you lose something. What you win is that there are certain questions that you no longer need to answer. For example, if someone says, okay, I see that you have some things arranged table-wise, but do you have a table? You can discount that as a nonsense question. You can say, what do you mean for there to be some things arranged table-wise just is for there to be a table? There is no need to answer the question. But there is also something you lose. You lose possibilities. So you can no longer work with possibilities where you have the things arranged table-wise, but no table. And maybe one was hoping to do theoretical work with those possibilities. Now, the reason I think that in the case of the table, the identity needs to be accepted is because I think that the extra possibilities, the possibilities you would gain by rejecting the identity statement, are useless. I do not think they can be used to do interesting philosophical work. So I think that there is very little loss by accepting the identity statement and a lot to gain because one no longer has to accept an incredibly awkward question like, I can see that there are some things arranged table-wise. Tell me whether or not there's a table. Yeah, so it seems like both of the examples we've discussed, the really intuitive position is the one you're defending. <laughs> you know, it's intuitive that if the number of dinosaurs is zero, then there are no dinosaurs. And it's intuitive that if a bunch of stuff is nailed together in the shape of a table and it's in the middle of the room and doing all kinds of table stuff, then, it's, then there is a table. 
Is there an example where you think uh, where we should go the other way, where we should say, actually, no, it's fruitful to have these extra possibilities open, and we would lose something by saying these two things are the same thing? Let me give you an example which I think is super, super interesting. Let's go to an example which is due to Frank Jackson. Imagine that we have Mary, who's a super scientist. She knows everything there is to be known about color science. But she herself has never seen a color. She's been trapped from birth in a black and white room. And everything she's learned about colors, she's learned by reading books with black ink on white paper. And she knows that at noon today, she is going to be shown for the first time a red tomato. Here's a question. When she is finally shown the red tomato, does she learn something about the world? Does she learn a fact about the world that she did not already know? Now, what one says about that question is related to whether or not one accepts a particular identity statement. In particular, whether or not one thinks that to have the experience of seeing red just is to be in a particular brain state. Because one can assume that Mary knew all along that she was going to be in that brain state at noon. After all, she is a super scientist who knows everything there is to be known about color science. And she knew that she was going to be shown something red at noon. So should one accept the identity statement or not? Well, the advantages are clear, and so are the disadvantages. The advantage of accepting it is that we are spared from having to answer certain awkward questions. Like, okay, I know that someone is in in the relevant brain state. Is she also experiencing the sensation of seeing red? That's a very awkward question because we have no idea how to answer it. We have no idea how to bridge the gap between someone's being in a particular brain state and someone's having a particular phenomenal experience. So that's the advantage. The advantage is that if we accept the identity statement, we don't have to answer that awkward question. Some people think that there is a disadvantage. The disadvantage is that intuitively, Mary has learned something when she finally sees the red tomato. And you might think that if you deny the identity, then you can model what this learning process in a particularly perspicuous way. So you might think that there are possibilities where Mary is in the brain state, but doesn't have that particular phenomenal experience. And you could model what she learns as the ruling out of possibilities where she's in the brain state, but doesn't have that particular experience. Now, as it happens, I think that the disadvantage is not really a disadvantage. I think that when one thinks about things properly, one discovers that one cannot really model Mary's cognitive accomplishment in this way. But I like the example nonetheless. I like the example because it shows how the decision whether to accept this particular identity statement, the identity statement, what it is to have the experience of seeing red, just is to be in a particular brain state is a fraught philosophical question. It's this difficult issue that one can only really address by doing serious philosophy of mind in serious metaphysics. Yeah, so on the one hand, 
it's kind of difficult to imagine somebody being in exactly the brain state you're in when you experience the color red, but not experiencing the color red. Those seem like maybe that's just the same thing. Maybe all it is to experience the color red is to have such and such neurons firing. But on the other hand, you know, when we're asking the question about whether this hypothetical person has learned something, we also feel an intuitive pull in the direction of saying, well, she has learned something because she's never actually seen the color red before. Maybe she's read about what happens to your brain when you see the color red in lots of books, but she hasn't actually experienced it firsthand. So what you want to bring to the table here is this idea that this is an example of a more general trade-off between having more possibilities to consider and having more questions to answer. Exactly. So if we accept the identity statements, we have less questions to answer, but also less possibilities to work with. We gain something, but we also lose something. You know, this question about when you want to say two different possible situations that may or may not obtain are the same situation or not, this seems to come up a lot in philosophy. Why do you think it's important that philosophers try to get clear about this trade-off we've just talked about? To my mind, it's important because it helps us fend off pseudo-questions. So I think that if you're the kind of philosopher who thinks that there's a difference between there being some things arranged table-wise and there being a table, then you're working with useless possibilities. A possibility where there are some things arranged table-wise, but no table, is one which you can ask a bunch of questions with that aren't really going to lead anywhere. If we manage to close up these possibilities, then we can focus on the things that really matter in philosophy. Now, there's something important that needs to be added. There are some philosophers who think it's easy to decide which philosophical questions are legitimate and which ones aren't. So the logical empiricists are often ridiculed for thinking that it was easy. I emphatically do not think it's easy. So generally speaking, the decision whether to accept an identity statement of this kind is really hard. And the only way to address it is by doing metaphysics. One needs to roll up one's sleeves and do the kind of philosophy that metaphysicians do. But the difference is that the outcome of this investigation can be the narrowing down of legitimate questions. And the hope is that once we start focusing on the things that really are important, we can make more progress. Maybe you might say that you're bringing back this idea sort of associated with logical empiricism, which is um, a philosophical movement from the 20s and 30s, itself influenced by um, the early work of Ludwig Wittgenstein, bringing back this idea that some problems that some philosophers are worried about aren't genuine problems. They're worrying about possibilities that are just kind of absurd, like there being no dinosaurs, but the number of dinosaurs somehow not being zero or whatever. You want to kind of bring that idea back, but you also want to sort of sound a cautionary note about assuming too easily from the outset which are the productive possibilities to consider and which are the less productive possibilities to consider, which are the real questions and which are the pseudo-questions. Because I guess it's easy to be influenced by things like, well, the questions I like are the deep questions and the questions I don't like are the, are the pseudo-questions or something like that. <laughs> yes, there's definitely always that risk. But I think you're right. I think of the project as a revival of logical empiricism. So one way of thinking about logical empiricism is as dividing scientific inquiry into two parts. Part one is deciding what logical space is. Part two is trying to determine where in logical space we live. 
The way logical empiricism is often portrayed is as maintaining that the first of these tasks is trivial. We can sit in our armchair and decide a priori without even looking at the world what logical space is like. So in particular, we can decide a priori what the pseudo-questions are. On my view, on the other hand, one cannot decide a priori what the shape of logical space is. When one sets out to do scientific inquiry, one has to do two things at once. On the one hand, one has to construct a conception of logical space, and on the other hand, one has to come to decisions about where in logical space one lives. And as inquiry progresses, one may need to do changes on both fronts. When, for example, the thermodynamic theory of heat was introduced, we had to give up an identity statement. We had to give up an idea that to be hot was just to have high concentrations of caloric fluid. And we replaced that with a different kind of identity statement. This is not quite right, but an approximation is to be hot just is to have high mean kinetic energy. This was a shift in our conception of logical space. We shifted the kinds of possibilities we're working with because at first we allowed for possibilities where we had things that were hot but had low mean kinetic energy. Now we do the opposite. Now we allow only possibilities where you're hot if and only if you have high mean kinetic energy. But assuming one understood what caloric fluid was, one would in principle be able to allow possibilities where you have hot things which lack caloric fluid. So we're changing the conception of logical space that we work with as we do scientific inquiry. Augustine Raya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 